and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. You put the lime and the coconut, and you mix them all together. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are doing part two of our talk about poisons, because we had so much stuff that we wanted to discuss last time that we just ran out of time for. We did, and there were rabbit trails, but they were good rabbit trails. There were. I mean, <laughs> there were productive rabbit trails for a change. Yeah, and I will <laughs> proudly say that I did not have any knocks on my door by randomly suited men from, you know, various three-letter agencies. So, so far, so good. Yeah, they may have caught wind that we were doing a part two, and they're just waiting until they had all the evidence. Possibly, yes. <laughs> no, knowing our luck, that's probably how it would work out. Yeah. They, they want to make sure that they have all the incriminating evidence possible to make sure that they lock us away. Yeah. Speaking of which, apparently it popped up on one of my news flashes semi-locally, like the county over from where I'm at. The uh, ATF went, and they, like captured a local still and they acquired like 81 quarts of moonshine apparently so wow yeah someone was doing some production must have missed that one yeah someone was getting some good production in (laughs) you know that's one that we don't hear about very often anymore yeah so often it's meth labs right you don't hear about moonshiners anymore it's always meth labs well i mean after the moonshiner show had its popularity and it's kind of waned a bit people are going for the most potent potables as it were but some people are holding to the old traditions and god bless them well you know, there are places now where you can go and you can buy quote unquote moonshine. It's not actual moonshine because moonshine by definition is illegally produced. Right. But it's, you know. High content corn ethanol. Yeah. It, yeah. It's unaged corn ethanol. Yes. You know, it's that's basically all that moonshine is. It's whiskey before you've aged it. Yes. And speaking oh. of rabbit trails, there we go. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of poisons, there we go. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> uh, though I don't think we talk about methanol. And I mean, methanol, if I was going to make a poison, you know, and I would say like a wood grain alcohol or methanol, this definitely would lower your wisdom check and I would have a DC check to prevent blindness. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be the main thing I would say. Yeah. And, you know, from the few times that I have seen people talking about distilling your own alcohol... That's the reason why those first two or three pulls off of the still get dumped. Yeah, it has to do, again, I'm finishing up a chemistry degree. By the end of the semester, I will actually be a level one wizard. I am claiming it officially, but... Artificer. You are an artificer, sir. I would be an artificer, but if anyone's going to be a wizard, it would be a chemist. It would be a transmutation wizard, and I will go to the grave with that one. But yes, I am also an artificer. However, it has to do with diffractional distillation. So as you hit certain temperatures, certain things distill off first, and the temperature to basically evaporate and distill the methanol is a little bit lower than the ethanol. So that comes off first. So again, that's why you generally pour off the first couple, you know, pints or quarts or whatever of your product. That said, keeping this tabletop themed... If you were going to have perhaps maybe, like I have in my Tomb of Annihilation campaign, a dwarf who likes to carry his distillation and his brewing kit with him, if he was going to try to brew anything more potent than beer, I would have him roll a crafting skill check. And depending on if he didn't pass his crafting DC by five or more, then either roll that or if he's failed his crafting DC, yes, he can still produce his dwarven spirits, but whatever he failed that... DC by, he would have to pass a constitution 10 plus that number for his constitution check to see if he does go blind from his own concoctions. (laughs) (laughs) And that would also be jumping the gun a little bit. 
there were stories from all over regarding occupying forces and the things that the local populations would do as sort of insurgent actions against the occupying force. Yes. And, you know, doctoring drinks, doctoring rations, all of those sorts of things. Those are things that absolutely happened all the time. And so it would not be too far amiss for a barkeep in a town that has recently been occupied by an outside force to put a little bit of wood alcohol in the drinks that he is serving and poison the entire garrison of the town. Not at all. And again, I know there used to be accusations, particularly during the French Resistance and things like that, where they would actually pour antifreeze into the wine because it, quote, quote, sweetened the wine. It also poisoned people because, you know, ethylene glycol. But yeah, no, things like that and tampering or spiking drinks, absolutely an insurgent's tactic. And again, I think we just like popped up in like four more lists with that. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So the first open disclaimer is don't actually do any of these things. This is for tabletop theory. Tabletop theory. (laughs) Yes. We do not openly condone or even, you know, behind closed doors condone actually poisoning people. No. Don't actually poison people. This said... And, I, and absolutely don't poison yourself either. Yes, don't poison yourself. Again, this said, talking about nefarious poisonings, because this is the topic of the day. I had an ex way back when who... She was considerably older than I was at the time. And she talked about when she was married and she got into arguments with her husband when she was married. She would go and as an apology would make him a lovely steak dinner. She would just lit the steak, you know, age on the countertop for four or five hours. And he liked his steaks cooked very rare and so he almost always got food poisoning when that happened and so that was always like her bit of revenge when she was mad at him apparently and and so <laughs> you didn't let her cook for you ever right uh, she did cook for me frequently thankfully i never got food poisoning i was young enough to have bachelor belly if she ever tried <laughs> but yeah i mean those weren't red flags at all but <laughs> all right so let's go ahead and get started so the first thing that i wanted to discuss a little bit is the why to use poisons because we didn't really get into that a whole lot the reasons why you would use poisons in your D&D game or in your TTRPG in general. Because they're fun. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing in a nutshell. Um, and the thing about using poisons and using poisons regularly or having them not be a rare occurrence, actually implementing poisons in your game is a good way if you're trying to have a lower magic game to add interest and intrigue. Absolutely. Because that's something that anybody can get their hands on something poisonous. Yeah. I mean, poisons are fairly innocuous. Now, again, this does tie back and we will talk about, you know, we are going to be summoning Dragon Magazine at various points through this episode. It's been a while. But in early editions, they try to make it specifically for, you know, the assassin class and things like that. But I disagree with that. I think anyone should have the ability to get at least on minor stuff because it is so innocuous. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, not every poison is going to kill somebody. Right. In fact, most poisons won't. They'll just make you really, really sick. Yeah. 
And as much as we've talked, it is hard and it is brutal. Like with third edition, where you had the stat reductions, this does lean to that more because the poisons aren't going to kill you. No, they're not going to drop your HP, but they're definitely going to slow you down. They're not going to make you feel as good. You're not going to swing as heavy. You're not going to think as clearly. And so having the poisons take those effects, status effects, I think fit really well, especially for maybe your cheaper or more common poisons. And that's one of the things that I think they got right with the poisoned condition is that it gives you disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks. Yeah. It does not change your saving throws. No. But it does give you disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks because it interferes with your ability to do the things that you consciously want to do. Really? I mean, for our listeners, two really clear common examples of quote quote poisoning if you've ever been really really hung over or extremely intoxicated or if you've ever had food poisoning as we talk again you're sick to your stomach you're headachy you can get dizzy nothing matters except how bad you feel and so if you're doing that and now someone's like hey let's run a mile no hey let's get into a fight i mean yeah some people when when they're intoxicated they do you know get into bar brawls and things like that but that day after when they're feeling gross they're just complaining about how bad their head feels they're not doing anything however if they happen to be in a house that catches on fire they will still have enough oomph in the tank to get themselves out of that burning house yes absolutely Which is the example that I would give for having disadvantage on your ability checks, but not on your saving throws. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, So those are some of the things that I would want to emphasize. Being able to have more interesting plot points. You know, somebody poisoned the king. Now we have to figure out who it was. Because maybe the poison that they used was one that breaks down very quickly, and so they can't use magic to detect where it is. Ooh, good call. Yeah, I could see that. Or maybe it was specifically a magical poison that did not leave a trace. Yeah. Again, it could be, too, as we talked about, like, your heavy metal poisons, and they are something that build up so slowly over time. Absolutely. That not any one thing poisoned the king, but maybe it's everything in the king's environment that is poisoning him and so who is putting those things there and where is the toxin even coming from right so let's talk a little bit about crafting poisons because that was one of the big things that we touched on last episode but we didn't really get into yeah we talked about how there isn't really a mechanical system in 5e for crafting poisons but we didn't talk about you know what we would do about that right so getting to spend some time you know with this i was actually able to go back and i know there is more about harvesting the toxins or poisons from animals in first and second edition i was able to go back and find some old third edition books and for as much as the book was panned the book of vile darkness actually has clear-cut and concise rules on poison crafting i was really happily surprised to come across that third edition got one absolutely right and i think they would pork quite easily to 5th edition. I mean, they would require a little bit of modification going from the unbounded accuracy of 3rd edition into the bounded accuracy of 5th edition, but that's mainly just 
turning the dial on the DCs down. Right. So kind of coming in with third edition, you would use your crafting skill because crafting was a skill like your athletics or your ability or your perception. Crafting was its own skill in third edition. You could also get a potion or magical item crafting feat in third edition, which would help lower that DC check. But you would roll depending on the DC of crafting the poison. You had to have a set amount in gold. You had to have at least it was, I believe, one third the actual purchase price and raw materials and you'd spend a week's time crafting you would roll your dc check and if your dc check matched or was greater then you would multiply your dc check by the dc of the item so say it was a 15 dc to craft and you rolled a 20 20 times 15 is going to come up to was it 300 yeah. 20 times 15 yeah 300. 300 so you'd create 300 gold pieces worth of this toxin or poison for that week. So if your toxin cost 100 gold pieces per vial or per use, then you'd get three charges of poison for the week. If you failed your check, then you didn't craft anything that week. If you failed it by more than five, you lost your resources for the week and you possibly poisoned yourself and you'd have to roll a constitution check to see if you poisoned yourself in the creation of your poisons. Right. And I mean, that really balances out well. It's clear what you need. Okay, yeah, go find, you know, whatever your DM says is going to be the components for this. Material-wise, here's a thing that you need. You've got a clear DC check. It balances out really well. Craft Potion was a feat for 3rd edition where you could craft any spell, 3rd level or lower, into a potion that you could use once. And it could either target a group of people or a single individual. I like this concept, too. I think maybe instead of knowing a spell... Because, again, a lot of your poisoners are going to be non-magic things. Maybe instead of buying a scroll to know the spell, you have to purchase a poison recipe. And depending on the potency of the poison or how strong it's going to be, and again, you can do that by damage level or things like that, compare it to a spell level of the similar damage or strength, would be the cost to know the recipe for this poison. And then you go back to ingredients, crafting time, DC check, and fail or save. So there was a poison crafting homebrew document that we found on reddit it's by a user j kim i'm going to put a link to that particular doc in the show notes and they made a crafting system for making poisons specifically and talked a little bit about you know gathering plants to make their poisons and what you would need to do in order to create something. Their process is much accelerated over the third edition process that James is talking about. For this one in particular, it requires one hour of work, 100 gold of materials, and a DC-10 poisoner's kit check. Okay. Baseline. And then whenever you make your check... For every five points over the DC, you make a second dose. You lose half your materials if you fail the check. And your poison is going to deal the basic 1d8 poison damage, half damage on a successful save. The DC is set to 10 plus your proficiency bonus at the time of crafting it. And at the time of crafting it, says you can determine whether the poison is a contact, ingested, inhaled, or injury poison. And you can increase aspects of your poison by spending points equal to whatever your proficiency bonus is. You can spend one point to bump up the DC of the poison, or you can spend two points to bump up the damage of the poison. Okay. And there are also different special effects that you could get from 
various rare ingredients that you include in the poison. The list that they put out here is obviously Elder Scrolls inspired because almost all of these ingredients are alchemy ingredients from the Elder Scrolls games. For an example, number six, Hemlock. This herb attacks the mind. On a fail, the creature is poisoned for one hour. While poisoned in this way, the creature has disadvantage on intelligence, wisdom, and charisma checks and saving throws. And that is amazing. I love that mechanic. And yes, while this creator's list does have a very... Skyrim Elder Scroll feel to it. I don't personally mind that because if you're creating a tabletop game and there is a mechanic that you love from another game, totally bring it in. Again, check to make sure it balances with your system. But as long as your balance is okay, totally use those skills, use those, you know, ideas and inventories for your system. And also, you know, if you don't like what it's called, just change the name of it. Yeah. Oh, no. Just change the name of the plant and leave the effects the same. And all of a sudden, hey, it works. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I don't like Ninru. I know it's Wolfsbane. Okay, yeah, find a Wolfsbane root and throw it in. It's going to do. Oh, and then even if you do that and you can either make up fantasy names or go and look up a botany book and find some plant names, give it, you know, your Latin, you know, genus species name. And it sounds great, and it sounds like you've come up with this awesome thing, and all you did was swap name tags. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's not plagiarism, it's recycling. Yes, it's it's inspiration. <laughs> and another thing from J. Kim's doc that I really liked is that if you happen to have the poisoner feet, you're able to produce poisons with half of the materials, and you automatically get either plus one die to the damage or plus two to the DC. So you basically get a free two points of proficiency bonus to throw into your poison creation. And that makes sense. I mean, if you've taken a feat, then you've obviously used these materials before. You're familiar with them. You're going to know tricks and shortcuts and the most efficient way to do things. And yeah, of course, you're going to be more pronounced at creating your stuff. So I have absolutely no problem with that in them. Yeah, that works for me a lot because, you know, spending an ASI to buy a feat is a big deal. It really is, especially in 5th edition. And so if you're going to put that devotion into picking up this feat for roleplay purposes, it should have an actual impact. Absolutely, yes. I agree. And again, depending on how your character plans to use this poisoning, especially if it's something they're going to use more frequently, that would fit. Um, With that poisoner's feat, I would also give a bonus to recognizing the poison. So, hey, this is what the effects of this poison looks like. And so possibly an advantage on like a healer's kit check to cure poisoning or dispel poisoning if a player is poisoned. Because I think poisoning and healing really should be opposite sides of the same coin and they really should travel together and i can also see if you happen to have a proficiency with alchemist's tools that would provide an additional bonus whenever doing this because a lot of this would require certain alchemical knowledge and there would be a lot of overlap between the two right and that was one of the things with the crafting skills in third edition was if you didn't have the poisoner's feet but you had the alchemy crafting skill you could just take a minus four penalty but again you were unable to do it it was just a little harder for you and again you're used to using the material but not necessarily to make a stable poison right because as an alchemist your education would be okay this is the way that you don't do this because you 
don't want it to be poisonous. Right, exactly. And so, okay, well, I do want this to be poisonous, but I also want to maybe be able to store it for a little bit so I can use it at a specific moment. One thing I would change, and again, this will get more into implementation, especially if you have the poisoner's feet, I would put adding poison to a weapon, maybe like dipping a knife or an arrowhead or something like that. I would be inclined to push that towards a bonus action rather than a full action. I can see that. I could also see either getting more than one use per dose. Yeah. So like being able to poison twice as many attacks. Okay. You still get one application per attack, but you know how much you actually need. And so you're more efficient in applying it. So like one vial of poison would give you two applications. Okay. Rather than just the one. Okay. I mean, that would fit as well. Yeah. So that would be something that I could see. Or being able to extend the window of viability. So like, instead of it drying up and becoming useless after one minute, say after five minutes. So that would give you a little bit of ability to really prepare ahead of time. Yeah. You know, because basically what you're doing is you're using your knowledge of poisons. You're like, okay, this is something that I can mix with this poison that isn't going to affect its effectiveness, right. but is going to extend its usable work life. Right. And this really kind of comes down to how you run combat on your table. A lot of games, there is lead up to combat unless it's truly a random encounter. And even then, there's sometimes some chat before things devolve because diplomacy is and should be an option in a lot of cases. And so if, say, you're rogue or whatever knows that the situation's likely to degrade then while they're chatting yeah i'm going to use my turn and i'm going to go ahead and coat my weapon with poison or maybe a ranger hey i see animals coming up and i don't know their temperament so they look like they could be hostile i'm going to go ahead and coat my weapons with poison and this is generally what they call a buffing round this is when you know your wizards and sorcerers are going to cast you know Bear strength and eagles with mage armor, mage armor, things like that, which is harder to do once fists start flying. That said, sometimes fists are flying and it does seem a little stouter than your party anticipates. And that's kind of where being able to poison a weapon as a bonus action becomes useful because you can kind of, oh, well, I've got this. Maybe they have to keep a special weapon in reserve that is poisoned and they can take that to switch weapons out or something. Again, that is one of those mechanics that we can kind of work out. It would depend on DM and table on how you actually ran your encounter. And for someone like an assassin, you know, somebody who's going to be utilizing poisons, especially injury poisons, because that is the most easily utilized poison type in D&D. Yes. You know, the poison that you can just slap on a weapon and, and stab em. somebody with it. You know, I can absolutely see an assassin type character having like a dagger sheath that has been specifically crafted so that they can pour the poison directly into the sheath. And so that way, as long as the dagger is in the sheath, it's a sealed container. Yeah. And so the poison is there and viable and coating the weapon. And whenever they draw the weapon, they have one minute from the time they draw the weapon to stab somebody with it. That would make perfect sense. And I would put that on a reset of maybe once per short rest or long rest. Because once they crack that, obviously that poison is going to dry out. And then once they rest, they can do whatever they need to do to remix or refill that container and seal their weapon back up. And then again, they have it in case of emergency, break glass, stab enemy. Well, given that drawing or sheathing a weapon is an interaction, 
It's a free action. You can draw or sheath one weapon as part of an attack action. Right. If we made it say it's an action to dose poison into this. Okay. Then, you know, on their turn, if they needed to dose again, let's just say it's a rogue. They run, they hide as a bonus action, action, pour the poison in, interaction, sheath their weapon. And then on the next turn, they would be able to draw their weapon as part of the attack action and attack with it. Okay, I do like that. With that, I would almost want to make them going to borrow from sports ball. But, you know, in college football, if you have a player that comes off to the sidelines for any reason, they have to sit out for at least one play. They can't, like, run off to the sidelines, do stuff, like come back in for the same play. So if you were to sheath your weapon for that, then you'd have to switch weapons and attack with a separate weapon at least once before you could redraw and poison. No, because the action is putting the poison in the sheath. Oh, okay. So yeah, that would be that turn. And this would be a special sheath. You couldn't just do this with any old sheath. Okay. You know, if you just did this with a regular dagger and it's regular leather sheath, you'd just make a huge mess. Okay. This is a specialized sheath that is made specifically for this purpose. So we'd have a sheath of poisoning. We need to come up with a better name than that, but um, (laughs) this could be a material write-up for us because I do like this idea. Yeah, and, you know, that would be something that somebody who is in the know would be able to notice on a certain DC perception check, oh, hey, that sheath on that dude's belt is something that holds poison. He's probably using poisons. That would be great. I could totally see, you know, goblins having... Especially like your goblin chiefs would have something like that. Either they kept a sword or a dagger and it would be something they used for that extra. Yeah. And it, yeah, I like that. I could see role play aspects with this. And again, whether or not your party would recognize it as such. Yeah, I really like that. That has a lot of possibility. I would almost want the same for quivers. And again, yeah. maybe if you had a quiver, it would increase the longevity of a poison. So your arrows would basically carry some poison damage. And at that point, it'd be equivalent to having like an ice arrow or a flame arrow or something like that yeah i could see that okay and it would be another thing where it'd be like it's this is a specialized quiver yes it has this little reservoir at the bottom you take your arrow whenever you're putting all of this together you take this little reservoir you pour your poison into it you set the arrowhead down into it and then you use beeswax and you seal around the shaft of the arrow so it is a sealed container yeah And so whenever you go to do it, you pop the cap basically off of your arrow and then you have a poisoned arrow ready to fire at your convenience. No, I love that. I kind of want to see this with like some sort of sea anemone or like a sea cucumber at the base that holds the thing. Or maybe like the arrowheads themselves have like some bit of like stinger or thing on the edge attached to it, kind of like fletching, but on the front. So it just carries that little extra bit of like a wasp stinger. I mean, obviously it wouldn't be a wasp stinger. It would have to be like a scorpion stinger or something like that to carry that bit of poison in. But I think, you know, again, role playing and describing that for your players could be a lot of fun too. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the actual crafting process, starting off with how we are going to be harvesting stuff. Okay. So with your crafting poisons, plant poisons are obviously going to be the easiest to come by. Yes. Because they're plants. They grow in the dirt. There are some plants that are going to be more toxic than others. And so there are certain plants that if you start growing several of these poisonous plants in your garden you might start raising some red flags among people who know that they're poisonous plants. Yes. But all in all, there are plenty of wild plants in most environments that 
if you know what you're looking for, you can find something that is at least poisonous enough to incapacitate somebody. That's fair. With this, I would say if you're trying to make a poison from these plants, these are probably going to be your simpler poisons, and it's going to take more time to craft the poison from them because you are going to have to grind them and extract them and distill them and things like that versus harvesting toxin from an animal where their biological processes have already produced the toxins in some amount. So with this, I would say getting your poisons from your plants would take either a longer time for your crafting or more material components for your crafting. And I would definitely lean towards if you're just going to make the basic poison, you know, that basic bog standard poison, you could do that from just random kind of poisonous plants. And if you wanted to do anything more than just having a poison that inflicts the poisoned condition, then you have to start getting specific ingredients. Then you have to start doing specific treatments of those ingredients. But generally speaking, if you're wanting to make a poison that would inflict the poisoned condition upon the target, then any bog standard poisonous plant that your character comes across in the world, if they collect enough of it, they can crush it up, grind it up, extract the juices, extract whatever enzymes they need from it, throw it all together in this cornucopia of filth and make a poison out of it. Very fair. Yes, absolutely. And again, too, I would also make this a little easier with your simple poisons. Again, depending on how much thought you want to put into things, is this going to be a weapon poison where it's going to be an injury poison? Or is this a poison that they plan to maybe slip into someone's drink at a certain time? And with that, I think making an adjustable poison would have a lower DC than making a weapon contact or injury poison as well. Absolutely. Ingestion poisons should be the simplest to make. Yeah, because you're just bloop in a drink, and again, you're drinking it, you're taking it in. It's very easy to introduce into a system. You're going to want to have your characters roll that sleight of hand check just to make sure they're not caught. But other than that, a simple, easy poisoning. And again, dropping something in a drink would probably be done out of combat, would be something in the bar while roleplay is going on, or you know, at the dinner table while roleplay is going on. And, you know, it could be something as simple as squishing a handful of poke berries or nightshade berries and dropping it into a barrel of wine. Yeah. That would do it. Yeah. If all you're trying to do is inflict the poison condition on the people who are drinking that wine. Oh, yeah. That'd be a good way. Like, if you have to sneak past, like, gate guards, you know, you've got five or six of them there. You know what's going on. You know you're going to have to come back that night for whatever reason. Then, yeah, poison their wine barrel because they're all drawn from it. You know, or the water barrel that they're all drinking their water from because the afternoon's hot. And they're all just feeling really crappy that afternoon for whatever reason. And the evening comes and sneak, sneak, sneak. Yeah. Throw them into like a little linen bag with a couple of rocks. Yeah. You drop it into the bottom of that barrel of water. Like a tea sachet, yeah. And, you know, it would filter out and up and it would be enough to make them feel ill, Mm -hmm. enough to give them some gut distress, but it's not going to be enough to actually kill anybody. Yeah. And with that, you know, dropping that sachet in. Obviously, again, your slide of hand check, and then I would offer the guards a general perception check throughout the day to notice if something was in their water barrel or their wine barrel that shouldn't be if it's not. I mean, like if it's just an open water barrel that they're dipping a ladle in and drinking out of, or if it's closed, that would make it a more difficult check. But I would give them a chance to see if something was inside, but if they don't notice it, then yeah. 
Yeah. So the poison that is going to be the most easily usable, the one that is going to be ready to use right off the bat, most of those are going to be your animal venoms. And the harvesting of those particular venoms is going to vary depending on the nature of the poison and the creature it's being harvested from. Absolutely. And this is kind of where we get back to first and second edition, which I think had wonderful rules. And as I talked about earlier with borrowing good things from good franchises that seem to be fairly successful, Monster Hunter is a wonderfully successful franchise. And some of these rules from first and second edition for harvesting poisons have a very strong Monster Hunter feel. And your chance of collecting these toxins depended on... What kind of weapon you use? Did you try to restrain the creature? Did you pin it down? Did you hit it with fireball and you're hoping, hey, maybe I can find a poison gland? Or did you club it to death with some clubs and then tied it up so you could extract, you know, whatever glands or things? And I love those mechanics. And as I said, Monster Hunter is a wonderfully successful game. If you institute those right, so, hey, you're looking specifically for this kind of creature for your toxins and it needs to be disabled or killed in this specific fashion... That adds some extra challenge for your players, and I think a bit of excitement as well as challenge, because, yeah, now you can't just drop fireball on a bunch of animals and kill them real quick. You have to dispose of them in a certain way in order to extract what you need. Right, yeah. So there are some instances where it could be fairly trivial to get these sort of poisons. One example that I thought of while I was putting all this together is make a friend with a grung. Ooh. You know, the little poison tree frog people. Yeah. And then all you have to do is convince them to just stand still for a minute and let you swab them. That's, uh. um, I mean, that's a close friendy, and I'm sorry. I mean, we've been podcasting for a while. If you say, hey, stand still and let me swab you with this console, I'm going to feel a little awkward. Just, I mean, we're good friends, but boundaries. <laughs> You're also not a grung, fair, James. Fair, So by default, grung poison has two properties. One is... A contact poison, DC 12 con save versus the poison condition, or an injury poison, DC 12 con save versus 2d4 poison damage. So following the basic poison rules, by default, you would have one minute to use this poison if you were to, say, touch an arrowhead to their forearm or something. But if you were to, say, take a sponge and you you know, sponge them down with it, and then you put that damp sponge directly into a sealed container, then you would be able to open that sealed container and coat your weapons off of that sponge at a later date. I do like that. Okay, two points with this. I'm going to come back to this grung. I'm going to talk about mechanics first and then a wonderful scenario idea with that grung. So first mechanics, I'm going to go again back to the Book of Wild Darkness because they do actually address getting venom directly from wild animal and beasts. And they talk about how you can do that, but it's not as effective as, say, a prepared or concentrated toxin or poison. So like if you were going to try to milk an adder or get grung poison, they said its value or its potency would be about one third or one quarter. Because, again, that has not been prepared to be a specific weapon poison. Now, with the grung, where they do have the actual skin toxicity, maybe on that one, if you're going to use it right away, but if you're going to store it, I would say you'd have to store more or, again, put some sort of crafting skill to make it stable. Right. And that is something that I don't think you would be, you know, mopping grung for profit. <laughs> I think we have another scenario title for the future, mopping grung for profit. <laughs> 
Yeah, mopping Grung for fun and profit. I love it. Uh, and that would be because Grung poison, it's a fairly low DC. Yeah. It's a DC 12 by default. Any sort of preparation that you would do to it could extend the shelf life or it could increase the toxicity of it, you know, increasing the damage or the duration okay. of it. But I think that for something that is just a little extra oomph right when you need it, that it works. Yeah, I like it. And talking about a little extra oomph when you need it brings me to the immediate scenario, I imagine. But you have the barbarian picking up grung and throwing them into enemies' faces. Um, they might not necessarily be friendly grung at that point or this encounter. But, you know, grung to the face, you get smacked with the grung, and then you have to roll DC for contact poison. I really want just a barbarian hucking grung. And I also wanted to say hucking grung because it's fun. Why not just cut out the middleman and make the grung the barbarian? So I mean, they have a 25-foot leap. Because I want to see a barbarian pick up a grung and just throw it at somebody. Though a grung barbarian, I could see that just doing like a bull rush and rushing in and like trying to shoulder check something. Because it knows it has that contact poison and it's not trying to grapple you. It's just trying to hit you and get contact. So you have to make that poison save. I could see a barbarian and maybe give it a disengage feature. So it's going to bull rush, come in, hit a player, and then disengage and step back. So you don't get attack of opportunity. So I can go and rinse and repeat and do that again. And if you had yeah. three or four of them doing that, that would be a fairly tricky scenario, I think. I think also, you know, having a grung monk... Oh, yes. It just walks in with unarmed strikes. Yes. Oh, just He's slapping like, oh. people with poison slaps. <laughs> slap, 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 slap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. That would yeah. be, oh, that is beautiful. We need a poison grung monk. That, yes. And then the last point that I want to make is because grung poison is a contact poison, you could totally apply it to bludgeoning weapons. Yes, absolutely. And this is one of those poisons that you actually could apply to a blunt weapon and get use out of. Yes. And so that is something that I want to see more of. Yeah, absolutely. And again, because most poisons are, you know, dagger or arrow or sword, contact poisons very much could be used with, you know, putting something on the shalele. So now you've got a poison club would be fair. Absolutely. I think, too, and this would probably start ranging into, for 5th edition, magical weapons, perhaps. But if you had, like, an ogre or a barbarian, and their club is just made from, like, wormwood or poisoned wood. And again, that would be, you're smacking them, and as you smack them, oils leach out of this thing, and you have to make a DC save. Would be a thematically clear way to do that. Uh, what's that nasty tree that, oh, that grows in the Pacific, the South Pacific? Is it South that, Pacific you know, or towards Florida? But yeah, I know what you're talking about, that poison apple tree. The, the one, yeah, the poison apple tree. Yeah. Oh, that thing's brutal. Yes, absolutely. Just, you know, having a giant that has poison immunity and it's just using a tree trunk from one of those poison apple trees as its weapon. I could see that. Or even if they know better and they're just wearing heavy leather gloves while they use the thing. Yeah, that would work yeah. too. But yeah, that would I be mean, because, brutal. Because heavy leather to a giant, that would be like five-ply cowhide. <laughs> Just elephant skin. <laughs> yeah. Literal rhino hide. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I love it. I'm excited now. <laughs> so, moving along. Now, some animal poisons would be more dangerous to acquire. Absolutely. So, something like harvesting viper venom. Yeah. This would require you to be able to catch the snake and milk the snake. We have the whole practice of how to do this in our modern world. 
So this would be something where I would say make an animal handling check. You could do it possibly as a dexterity instead of a wisdom if you wanted to. Okay. Just the animal handling is the knowledge of how to grab it. And the dexterity is the moving around to actually get the angle to grab it without getting bit. Yeah, with that, I would offer a couple other options. If you have, by chance, talked to animals, uh, you could perhaps or try to cast animal friendship so they are willing to let you extract. The other way, again, coming back to this first and second edition, and maybe specifically you have to kill the snake with a slashing weapon to say that you are chopping the head of this thing off and then you would have to roll your dexterity check with advantage to see if you could milk anything from the glands but if you hit it with a piercing weapon or bludgeoning weapon then you've crushed or pierced the venom glands and you wouldn't be able to extract from them but this would allow you to not kill the snake and then milk it again later. Yes, if you were keeping these like um, herptologist little sanctuary where you've got a cellar full of critters for mass production, absolutely. But if you were out in the wild and trying to gather, or again, perhaps you're running a more peaceful type of party, maybe you have a pacifist, and so you don't want to kill the animals, but you do want to handle them, yeah. Um, but is it truly pacifism if you're milking poison to give to somebody who's going to kill somebody with it? You're not enacting the violence. What the person does with what you give them is totally their choice. But is it still pacifism if you are facilitating <sighs> the violence of others? Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> I mean, you have pacifist clerics and healers and they are healing fighters and they are out there fighting and doing battle, but they are not necessarily. But by healing them, they are able to further engage in battle. So again, exactly. They are facilitating further violence. That is a philosophical <laughs> debate for another episode, I believe. I think so. <laughs> but so, yeah, getting back into, you know, milk in the snake, you know, in, in public, actual <laughs> in the real world, whenever you do this, they typically have to wait roughly 60 days, two months to allow the snake to naturally regenerate its venom to a point where they can milk it again. Right. So I would say that with proper equipment and a successful check to grab this snake, you would probably get 1d4 doses of serpent venom off of this snake. Every two months, that would make sense. And, you know, that would be roughly what you would get from a snake. Because not every snake produces the same amount of venom. Some you can get a whole lot out of one milking and some you get almost nothing. Right. And again, if they were wild-caught, it would depend if it had eaten recently or anything like that Absolutely, as well. Yeah. yeah. And then larger snakes would yield more venom. So if you were to, say, get a giant poisonous snake, which is a medium-sized creature, I would say that you would get an automatic plus one on the doses for each size category larger than tiny. So if you're able to wrestle yeah. a <laughs> medium-sized poisonous snake and milk it, then you would get 1d4 plus 2 doses. If you can wrestle a medium-sized poisonous snake and milk it without getting squished and or bit, you deserve a plus 1. Plus 2. Plus, oh, yeah. You're getting plus 2 on this okay, if yeah. they're medium. Okay, yeah, you definitely deserve that plus 2 because, again, unless those snakes are trained and or otherwise friendly, they're not going to be happy about it. No. Another option for something that could be in the same hazard range would be cocktail saliva Ooh. because that inflicts petrification. Yes. And I would say that you could probably use a similar technique to what I suggested with the grung where you sort of sponge it off. 
but you may have to use something like cotton gauze because sponge is an animal. And so if you sponge the beak of this cockatrice, it might turn the sponge to stone. Yes, I love it. (laughs) I love it. And so, you know, harvesting would obviously be safer from a dead specimen, from a dead cockatrice, than it would be from a living one. However, there is evidence in lore of people keeping cockatrices as pets and as guard animals. So they are trainable. They can be domesticated. And so it wouldn't be too far out of the realm of possibility to have somebody who has a pet cockatrice that every so often they just harvest a little bit of cockatrice saliva. That's a hag coven, isn't it? <laughs> goblins, usually. Oh, okay. Goblins are kobolds, yeah. Oh, I'm imagining cockatrice. Whenever I think cockatrice, I'm immediately thinking of medieval lore. And yeah, I could see goblins having... That's... Oh, I don't know. That's a lot of order in order to train and keep cockatrices, cockatry. For that, I mean, okay. I, per, I, per the second edition monster manual, okay. goblins like to keep them. Interesting. I was unaware of that, and that is mildly terrifying. Yeah, that would be like a goblin chieftain status symbol, is that they have a guard cockatrice. Absolutely. Oh, um, that's, yeah. And then borrowing from that second edition lore, if you're going to be the person holding this cockatrice <laughs> while somebody swabs it... You have to have plate gloves. You have to have gauntlets because the bite of a cockatrice will inflict petrification through fabric and leather as if it isn't there. Because it's all animal hide. Yeah. And so you have to have metal in order for the peck of a cockatrice to not transfer that saliva to you and start to petrify you while you're holding it. Give me one second. I'm looking up the size of the cockatrice in 2nd edition D&D. See here, I happen to have the 2nd edition monster manual open. It is size small. Uh, Three feet tall. uh, You know what? With a goblin, it still might work. I want... You're wanting a goblin to ride one of these, aren't you? I want a goblin chief mounted on a combat cockatrice. I think if we were going to do a mount, it would need to be a pyrolisk. A pyrolisk? Why a pyrolisk? Because fire. Fire is interesting, but imagine... I mean, yeah, I could see fire, but I don't know. Just I am enthralled by the concept of the cockatrice with a poison bite anyway as a mount. Now, again, fire is great, but stone is good too. Um, and it has a death glare. Yes. You know, just because. Yeah, the pyrolisk has a death glare and it can cast pyrotechnics at will on any fire within 30 yards. That feels very Magic the Gathering Goblin-y too, so I am okay with this. <laughs> yeah. And itself is immune to fire. Yeah, that sounds about correct. That's what I want my Goblin Chieftain to have, and he is like Cinderbeard, the the <laughs> the, the, the Calvary Goblin. I love this. Yeah. Oh, very happy Cinderbeard, with that. Cinderbeard the Three-Fingered. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his rival has a cockatrice mount and there's some sort of like rival warring faction between the two goblin camps and your players have to pick one side or the other. Are you going to go Team Stone or Team Fire? Right. Oh, I love it. Fire Nation, Earth Nation. (laughs) It's all fun and games until the Fire Nation invades. Exactly. (laughs) So another completely different example would be, say, Aboleth Mucus. Yes. Because Aboleths, they're an aquatic creature they are completely surrounded by this one foot thick mucus cloud at all times. And if you inhale the mucus, you gain the ability to breathe water, but you lose the ability to breathe air. Ooh, interesting. And it lasts for 
like 2d6 hours i would love to spring that on a party that would be so very interesting like they go in and they have to do something underwater and you know random npc offers some help hey this is the only way you can do it but they don't tell them about the air part and so they go they escape they come out and suddenly for a few rounds they can't breathe above the surface it would be a very interesting twist Right. And another side effect of Aboleth Mucus is it alters the skin of the victim. It makes it sort of translucent and slimy to where you have to constantly wet it if you're not in water. Because if you're not in water, after 10 minutes, it will dry out and start actually dealing damage to you. And that's on inhalation or on ingestion? I think it's technically an inhalation poison. It's not listed as a poison on the stat block because technically it is a disease. Okay. I could see that being a trap in a desert temple. It may even be like a contact poison. Because it's you have to make that save if you make a melee attack against the Aboleth. Yeah, it does sound like contact. But that would be something that, say, you are able to kill an Aboleth. And you're able to get its body close enough to the shore to where you can just tie a cup onto the end of your 10-foot pole and just start scooping the mucus off of it. I would say start scraping with like a glaive and it would just kind of build up and then you can kind of just flop it down. Yes, slop it into a a bucket or something. Um, And then that would be something where you have it in sort of a beaker style vial one where it doesn't come up to a neck where it's just straight up yeah and so the way that you administer this poison is you pop the cork off of it and you just splash it in their face yeah just chuck it like a bucket yeah like a spurned lover in a tv show (laughs) yes throwing a glass of water in your face (laughs) i love it i do also like the old bucket of water again going back to the trap theme but the bucket of water above a door so you you open the door and the stuff just gunks on you yeah and you know since aboliths do have mind slaves people who are psychically subjugated by the abolith who are loyal because of dominate person, you know, that would not be outside the realm of possibility of a trap that an Aboleth would have their followers set up. Yeah, that holds a lot of fun possibilities. And then the last one that I wanted to talk about in terms of animal poisons is the purple worm. Of course. Purple worm venom is ubiquitous in 5e. That would be an instance where it would be far too dangerous to try and harvest it from a living creature. Yeah. Because it is a gargantuan purple worm that can literally swallow you and all of your friends and still be hungry. Right. Uh, that that one you he was still hungry. <laughs> it's a hungry, hungry cat. I love that book. That was one of my favorite children's books. Yeah. So the poison of a purple worm is administered via a stinger on its tail. So what is the size of that stinger, though? If this thing is gargantuan, that stinger's got to be like a well auger. Probably like two or three feet long. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to even have a chance of harvesting it, you have to try and limit your damage to the front end of this worm. Right. The way that I would set it up is to harvest it, you would have to make either a nature or survival check. To be able to identify the anatomy of the purple worm and figure out exactly where this poison sack is. And then you have to make a sleight of hand check 
to cut it out without rupturing it. Fair. I'd also allow a medicine check, perhaps, because it would be like a surgery or a dissection. In either case, it would be a dexterity check. Yes. I would not let them use intelligence or wisdom on that one in particular because it is that specific hand-eye coordination that is required. On a terrible fell, you rupture the venom sac and it just sprays everywhere. Like if you fail by like 10 or more. So I actually thought of that. Oh, excellent. So just because of purple worms being purple worms and the poison being a DC 19 poison, (laughs) it's a DC 19 to harvest this. Of course. If they fail on their nature or survival check, they have disadvantage on the sleight of hand check. Okay. Because they're going by feel. They don't know exactly where everything is. Okay. So on a success... You would get the sack out intact, and it would have eight doses minus the number of times it made a stinger attack in that combat. Okay. So if combat went three rounds and it made a stinger attack each round, it only has five doses because it used some in the fight. Understandable. If you fail, you cut the sack, but you're able to get it out, and so you lose 1d8 doses of what would have been in there. Okay. So you might be able to salvage some, but you're not going to get near as much as you would if you hadn't cut it. Okay. And if you fail by five or more, that's whenever you cut it open and it all goes everywhere and you have to make a saving throw (laughs) against the poison. I like that. I am imagining, again, because you picked the worst muse possible, Ian, I am sorry, but another one-off scenario where you have groups of adventurers doing this and it's like the old whaling expeditions. Have you ever heard Moby Dick? I don't know if you actually... Yes. Yeah, so it's like that, you know, or they did... Moby Dick is a hard book to read. It's very long, very dense, but he does go into detail about, you know, how they harvest the oils and stuff, uh, particularly... And then there's a random chapter all about tying knots. Yes, but, you know, from the sperm well, and there were certain areas where the oil they were harvesting was from. You could do this with your purple worms, and so you have these huge adventuring parties that are out there specifically to hunt and harvest this purple worm venom for whoever... Your sponsor is going to be, but that's your whole thing is you have to get so many doses within like right. a month or two. Uh, and you could have not quite a high seas adventure, but definitely along those lines, I think would be really fun. Yeah, that would be interesting. The way that you could make it like a high seas adventure is that they're doing this. They're going worming in airships. Oh, yes. Perfect. Well done. Yes. And then whenever they spot the purple worm going off across the countryside, they hop into their little, like, ornithopters to go down and harpoon the purple worm. We've got another one shot, Ian. We've got another one shot. (laughs) And, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the stinger because my immediate thought on that, because I had to look it up. I thought that it was a venomous part of the bite. I didn't realize that it was a stinger. You have this great big stinger now. That will make... A gnarly dagger that is designed to administer poisons. Now, again, with that stinger, depending on the size, because this thing's gargantuan. Yeah, it could be a short sword. It could be a short sword, or it could honestly, I was thinking like it would be like one of those masked decorations, a mask mount for like a a ramming type thing, in which case it would probably be hardened. Or if you're going giant slaying after, maybe that's why you're harvesting this purple worm venom as you're going giant slaying after this. So you have this one shot, you know, to harvest this venom, and now you've got this maybe like a battering ram to attack the giants with that if you can hit one of these things like in the ankle or the hip with this stinger then you know that would administer the venom as well or it could be that it's a giant that has hired you to go and get this oh yeah because they want to make a dagger for them out of it oh yes i love it and And, you know whenever you have a 10 to 12 foot tall giant a dagger 
on scale for them would scale up to a short sword to maybe even a long sword for a regular six foot tall human. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely have a couple one shots in this one, Ian. We're (laughs) going to have to sit down and start putting stuff together once we finish kicking the nest. Yeah. Okay. I will have to write this down after this episode and start outlining (laughs) for you. Yeah. And then let's touch briefly, because we're starting to run a little bit long, a little bit on mineral poisons, because we did talk about it for a little bit. The main way that I would see getting the raw ingredients for mineral poisons would be getting access to the waste byproducts of metal refining, refining ores. Okay, I can see that. For example, the mineral galena which is lead to sulfide, Mm -hmm. is found almost exclusively in conjunction with silver. Yes. It is actually the primary ore surrounding silver. And there are lots of other metals, lots of other toxic metals, or potentially toxic metals, that are also wrapped up in all of this smorgasbord of minerals. you got stuff like antimony and arsenic and cadmium and zinc and copper. They are all found in this ore. Yes. But silver is the only one that they really, really want. And so all of the other stuff just sort of kind of gets glommed together and it becomes the dross. Yes. The castoffs from this silver production. And if you can get that and you have the right alchemical knowledge, you can extract whichever metals you want from that. Absolutely. I was going to say, in California during the gold rush, they would actually look for land features that had high antimony or arsenic content because that is how they prospected for gold because gold does appear in those regions frequently as well where those other two metals are high. With this, I was going to say if you're going to have a dwarf poisoner because they already get that plus two constitution to poisons, they have resistance to poisons, and they're going to have stone scents. So yeah, absolutely, your dwarves are who you're going to go to for your mineral poisons, and I would be really excited to see one of those. Yeah, and with this knowledge in mind, that makes so much more sense as to why dwarves have poison resistance. Yeah. Because they're constantly being exposed to all of these toxic metals. Absolutely. And so their bodies have just adapted to flush those things out of the system. Yeah, I do like that. And again, either your refineries or even just your outright mines would be a great place to gather those. If you're going to have a dwarf or somebody run up or your party member, then, you know, do your barter and persuasion checks to see if you can like, hey, can I buy off your cast off or your mine leavings or your mine run, whatever it is. And, you know, maybe you get a giant bag. This process will take a fair bit of time because it would, again, yeah, it will take months to actually isolate each individual metal. You would have to isolate each individual metal. Then you're going to have to wind up crushing it down and extracting But again, too, a couple months ago, or actually it was a year or so ago, where Ian and I do historical reenactment, one of the events was actually poison theme, which was fun. And I went and I used stones that were known to be toxic that people used for makeup. And so maybe if your characters run through a beauty shop and they know that these certain minerals are being used, because again, lead was used for white paints. And strangely enough, people would ingest the stuff and their skin would go really pale and their pupils would dilate out. Lapis Cadmium was, too. Yeah. Cadmium was a very popular pigment. Yes. Uh, malachite for your green, like eyeshadows, lapis for your blues, but these stones have toxic metals in them as well. So depending on how much was used, you could go. So you could start buying these pigments for that and then producing either way. Yeah. And so a lot of these mineral poisons, as we mentioned last time, would be primarily ingestion poisons 
but they could also be modified to be injury or inhalation poisons. Inhalation poisons more likely than injury. Honestly, with some of them too, just a contact poison. And maybe that is a scenario where someone has poisoned the king, the queen, the princess, and they've done it through the makeup they're using for court. Right. They're powdering their wig and they're either inhaling or just contact. And they've breathed this toxin in over months and now royalty is poisoned and so you have to go find where stuff came from or maybe that is your party's plan to poison someone in this fashion and as i mentioned last time with my welding background fume fever yes zinc or cadmium if you were to say if you needed to get into a location and you wanted to incapacitate a garrison full of guards Oh, yeah, just toss it in the fire. You just What you do is you go into the barracks wherever everybody is sleeping. Mm-hmm. You craft a smoke bomb. Oh, yeah. An incendiary smoke bomb. And you just put zinc powder in with it. You light that off. You roll it in. You bar the door so that they can't <laughs> get out easily. Yeah. And so they're trapped in there with this smoke bomb breathing all of this toxic smoke. And... It's probably not going to kill anybody in that room, but they are going to be out of commission for a day or two. Absolutely. Well, I was thinking, too, if you didn't make the incendiary, if they're gathered around, you know, a warming fire or like a, a campfire or even like a great hall fire, tossing, again, a small sachet of this powder in so it burns in the fire and smokes up and you could fill a room that way as well. Yeah. And now, with these particular poisonous minerals, this is where I would advocate for poisons that don't let you have a saving throw to avoid them. Because they get in your body, they build up, and once they hit a critical mass, then you start getting symptoms. That's just how they work. Right. And so, what I would say is have different toxicity values for each of these, and they have to accrue say 10 points of toxicity in order for you to start having symptoms i like that i would also do like if your party came into like a smoke-filled room as a dm you start making tally marks for each turn they spend in that room and once they hit three four five turns symptoms start right and so the effects would begin to compound eventually adding more and more penalties until they ultimately became fatal so one example that i just sort of worked on a little bit just as a thought exercise lead poisoning okay so at stage one disadvantage on concentration and perception checks fair for the brain fog and hearing loss that sometimes goes with lead poisoning stage two is one permanent level of exhaustion oh is sluggishness and fatigue yeah is one of the symptoms of lead poisoning stage three disadvantage on charisma based checks because irritability fair is a symptom stage four is another permanent level of exhaustion Because you start getting abdominal pain and loss of appetite. Right. And then stage five, the final stage, would be 1d6 points of psychic damage per day halved on a successful save. And the damage also reduces your max HP by that amount. I like that. I would switch three and four. I would institute the irritability before I instituted the permanent fatigue. Permanent fatigue damage, that's that's a heavy one. I love it, but... Wow, that's heavy. I mean, one level of exhaustion at stage two, I think, is decent. Yeah. Well, okay. Just because it's permanent exhaustion, so even after they get out until they... No, I mean that as in they can't rest away this exhaustion. Right. That's what I mean. I don't mean that it if they're able to remove enough of the lead from their body to not 
be poisoned by it anymore, they could start recovering that. Okay. I was thinking they were going to have to like find a healer with like a greater restoration to take off that level of exhaustion. I'm like, no, because it's in there no. and it, okay, that balances out better. I was going to say, but hitting someone with some permanent exhaustion because exhaustion is brutal. That is one of the beefier mechanics in 5e. Yeah. And that's one of those things where I kind of like where they're going in D&D next or one D&D. Yeah, D&D Next was the playtest for 5th edition. Yeah. I like where they're going with 1D&D, at least the last time I looked at it, where exhaustion now goes up to 10 ranks, and each rank just gives you a flat minus 1 on attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws. That fits a little better, yes. Yeah. So it's not as punitive. Okay. It allows for more nuance, I guess. Gotcha. Anyway, I think that's pretty much got what we've got to talk about with regards to poisons tonight. Yeah, no, I really enjoy where we went. Again, a lot of depth. I was very happy to find, you know, the more concise rules from Book of Isle Darkness. And I think those rules could port, like I said, into 5th edition fairly easy. Now, you talked about making an adjustment to the DC checks. Off the cuff, what do you think you would do? I don't have those values up in front of me at the moment to I be mean, looking at these again i'm looking the lowest dc check for just the simplest poison was a dc 15 and they go up to dc 35 for like one of these dc 35s does like 2d8 strength damage one does 1d8 con damage and again those ability modifiers are i mean either one of those could drop a character depending on how they rolled but well let's just say where it says right here gargantuan centipede poison okay. is a dc 26 yeah that would be a gargantuan-sized creature. Purple Worm is a gargantuan-sized creature. It's a DC 19. So, I mean, it would be a... How to word this? It would be an incremental scale. It's not going to be something that is going to be one for one. So, this is going to have to be a look at the average saving throws per level. And then, you know, scaling stuff down... Because the higher your level goes, the more you're going to have to subtract from the third edition DC. Fair. So, like at level one, this you know tiny centipede poison being a DC eleven, that can probably just stay a DC eleven. Yeah, that's fair. But as it goes up, you're not going to be able to implement this DC fifty four <laughs> for a colossal scorpion poison. Yeah, absolutely not. That's just not going to happen. Right. DC twenty is probably about the max that you want to do, and that would be pushing it. Yeah. Because you know, assuming. Assuming that you have a plus five in your constitution, you would have to roll a 10 or better to succeed. You would have a 50% chance of success gotcha. on, on that roll. Well, again, too, if you had proficiency in constitution saving throws as well. I mean, yeah, that's actually what I'm saying. Okay. Is, you know, being able to add your proficiency bonus to that, you would get a plus 11. Yeah. Okay. I, I, and so if you had a DC 21, you would have to have a 10 or higher in order to succeed on that saving throw. Okay. Yeah. So it would be something that you would have to play with for a while. Yeah. Though honestly, with what is that? 90,000 gold pieces per dose? I don't. 9,000. 9,000, yeah. I don't want my victim saving too easy for <laughs> most. If I'm dropping that much coin for a poison, then yeah. But And it's also a DC 35 crafting check. Yeah. Fair. So <laughs> it's not going to be easy for anybody involved. Right. But yeah, so I guess the non-answer answer that I have for you is it depends. Fair. Very fair. <laughs> it's not an even one-to-one. -one. I'm sure there's somebody out there who has made a side-by-side -side table converting 3rd edition DCs into 5th edition DCs. 
I don't know where it is, if it exists, but I'm, I have a pretty good idea that with as many autistic people as are involved in this hobby, somebody has made that table oh, somewhere. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not going to invoke certain number of rules, but I'm sure there is the non-nasty version of that as well. So if you can imagine it, it exists somewhere on the internet. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Actually, I think that is one of the rules of the internet earlier on. I think it's like rule 21 or something. Okay. It's been a long time since I've read those. Fair. Anyway, rabbit trails. We're wrapping up. <laughs> Thank you for everyone for listening to us as we completely unravel here at the end of this episode. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or come join our discord and chat with us directly. You can find a link to the discord in our show notes. We're also on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, Mastodon, Blue Sky, I don't post on any of those nearly as much as I want to, but we're there. So come and find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on all of those. I have been slowly working through the games in the Solo But Not Alone 4 bundle. I just finished recording and am in the process of editing the video for the third game in the bundle at the time of recording this episode. It should be up by the time this episode releases. Hopefully I'll have it up tomorrow as we're speaking right now. The bundle is still open as of right now. So go to itch.io, search for the uh, Solo But Not Alone 4 bundle, or you can click on a link in the show notes. I've got a link down there to take you to that. My game Forever Home is included in the bundle. You can get the bundle for $10 or you can pay more if you want. It is a charity bundle for the mental health awareness charity Take This. You can also find us on itch under commentaste.itch.io or on Patreon at patreon.com slash undercommentaste. I finally got a new write-up on the Patreon. Woot. I got the counterflip. Oh, up I love that the counterflip, yes. Yeah, that we did with Kat. And Kat was kind enough to let me use the artwork that she drew Excellent. for the counterflip in the write-up. Perfect. So go check that out. Run with it. It's chaos. I love it. It is a beautiful chaotic creature. We didn't make Nightmare Fuel, but it is wonderfully chaotic. Apples, get your apples. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If this is your first time listening, welcome. We are so glad you found us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you find your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify. As always, subscribe, give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Also, you can join me on Fridays on Twitch as we have Brennan Swift Touch and we are taking her adventures through Baldur's Gate. I am playing Baldur's Gate 1 through 3 and discussing how the games relate from video games to tabletop concepts. Thank you, everyone, once again for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you again in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marykroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe. And we'll see you then.